2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Medieval History. I'm Evan Zerkadis, your host, and today I have the pleasure of talking with the two authors of the book, The Fantasy of the Middle Ages An Epic Journey Through Imaginary Medieval Worlds, published in 2022 by Getty Publications. Dr. Larissa Grolemont is the assistant curator of manuscripts at the Getty Museum. She received her PhD in art history from the University of Pennsylvania, and was the assisting editor for the Book of Beasts, the bestiary in the medieval world. Dr. Brian Keane teaches at Riverside City College in California, and was previously associate curator of manuscripts at the Getty Museum. He holds a PhD from the Courtauld Institute of Art from the University of London. Hello, Larissa and Brian, I'm very excited to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much for having us. We're thrilled to be here.
0: Always happy to discuss fantasy.
3: Perfect. Um, I would like to start our conversation by telling us a little bit about uh, yourselves first and how you got interested in Middle Ages and medieval history. That's a great question. Um, I
1: think that uh, the fantasy of the Middle Ages is really kind of a passion project for both of us because we are fans of uh, medieval pop culture. And I think the way that I got interested in the Middle Ages was really through reenactment, was through movies, was through television um, as a kid. And I have very vivid memories of going to the Bristol Renaissance Fair in Wisconsin, um, which is very close to where I grew up in, in Illinois um and you know we had our sort of normal slate of disney movies and other kinds of medieval Uh, medieval media um, as as children children's book illustration all of these kinds of things which I think really formed the bedrock of my interest in the middle ages and I was sort of thrilled to get to higher education to college and a master's degree and discover that medieval art history was a real thing that you could study and have a job in Um, and so that has come full circle I think with a project like fantasy.
0: I think, yeah, as Larissa has rightly said, for both of us, this is kind of a project that's been ongoing since childhood and in different ways. And that's been the real joy is to find those overlapping uh, intersections where, as Larissa mentioned, there's Disney, of course, Tolkien, Harry Potter, these worlds that feel medieval for certain reasons. But then there's also the worlds of reenactment. Larissa mentioned the Ren Faire, And for me, it's the sort of Shakespearean theatrical reenactments that I was used to doing from junior high and high school. And then also, of course, after becoming a medievalist and working in a department of medievalists at the Getty, it was really exciting to learn that there was a social media team that was also interested in finding ways to connect the broadest possible audiences with the collection, a collection that's always seen as a kind of um, stopover between antiquity and the Renaissance and yet has huge fandoms, as Larissa rightly notes. And so to be able to tap into that over many years working together on Instagram posts, blog posts, videos, answering questions from the public. I think we got to see how the Middle Ages always means something different for different people, depending on how they've come to know the Middle Ages. And all of those Middle Ages are worth studying, delving into, leaning into. And I think your phrase passion project is a good one. I felt like it was the first time we could actually admit that these were our passions and lean into them fully.
3: Right, right. Um, you know that's uh, by reading your your book, and uh, I, I, the next question is about you know how did how did this book start? How did this project um, come into life? Um, I was also thinking, you know, when did I you know really realize when what medieval was, or my first approach to medieval history? And I know many of our audience and everybody uh, kind of have this very like almost primordial sense of, you know, we know what medieval means. (laughs) And I think it comes to, as you very well describe in the book, but also um, through your introduction, we're surrounded by it, but uh, we never really sit down and uh, try to think how it came to be that we know of all of these concepts and, and, and and things. So it's, it's really interesting. Um, So, Again, back to my question, where did the idea for the book start? Um, And kind of in broader terms, um, what is the book about and what brought you two together uh, in this project? Um, Well, as
1: Brian said, I think social media was really the thing. Um, So we worked in a department of manuscripts together and manuscripts has has kind of been seen as a, a challenge in the museum. And it's as a difficult thing to, quote unquote, make relevant. And we actually thought that that wasn't hard at all, because people do know about the Middle Ages. And I think it's a unique period in that way, because it has been used as the backdrop for so much fictional storytelling that people have kind of already a sense of what medieval feels like, what they think it means. There's there's all of these elements, I think, that people bring To the Middle Ages already. And so you don't actually need to explain a lot of background. And so when we were thinking about social media and thinking about outreach to a general public from a museum standpoint, we were really thinking about well, how can we make the media and the material that we have in our department? Speak to an audience, and that was really by connecting it with popular culture. And so, one of the things that we really, um, w- really took off as a successful kind of initiative was the Game of Thrones thing, um, which we called Getty of Thrones, which Brian started, um, and then I came onto it at a later point. Um, but we sort of re- reconfigured it to be kind of more video based and more kind of audience based. Um, and this was basically a pretty simple concept. It was joining Game of Thrones and watching Game of Thrones as it was airing, and basically recapping the episodes using images from the collection. And people really liked it because it was a way to kind of see what they were seeing in this kind of fictional, quote unquote, medieval world, uh, fictional, but medieval-esque nonetheless, um, and then see it in real medieval art and make those kinds of connections. And so we started to get a lot of Questions about, well, what is real about Game of Thrones or what is medieval inspired about Game of Thrones? And I think that really asked us to reconsider. The source material in a lot of ways, and so we were thinking about costuming and weaponry and shipbuilding and <laughs> all these different kinds of topics that we had not thought about before. Um, and I think that was the kind of launch pad for a variety of other social media efforts that were sort of about connecting medieval art and the images in the manuscripts collection to pop culture, so to Disney, to Curse, to other kinds of Arthuriana. Um, and it was a really really interesting way I think to bring out the connections between what people kind of already felt that they knew about the middle ages and then real medieval art and see the kind of slippages or disconnections there as well and figure out like what is fantasy about this and what is real history about this and kind of I think making those distinctions was really interesting for both of us because we were sort of like well where does this actually come from and of course medievalism has a very long history itself and i think that's what got us interested in the topic that was a very long answer to a, <laughs> a simpleish question but brian do you have anything to add Well, I think you're right, though. Even the book itself is framed in this way. We begin
0: with a preface by Michelle Clapton, the costume designer for Game of Thrones, but also for The Crown. And she partnered early on with the Getty for a program about her own sources of inspiration. And I think for many in the audience that evening, it was a real reminder that, of course, costume designers are deep into the research. They're looking at a range of sources. And indeed, Michelle's sources for that project were all over the map. And she was thinking about world building in creating costumes that looked believable and authentic, but not necessarily accurate to any one specific time, even though George R. R. Martin had very specific time periods in mind. And then the showrunners had their own ideas. We don't want to hear lutes and flutes, but give us deep organ and really intense chant and cello and we'll feel medieval. So the project, as Larissa said, was a nice way to unpack all of that. And you touched on briefly on the Netflix series Cursed. That was another opportunity for us with our social media team to think, okay, what are the many Arthurian references in that new Netflix retelling that yes we're following the story of Nimue the lady of the lake but we have a black arthur and we have lesbian nuns and we have other you know magical beings so we did dive deeply into looking at the roots for all of those knowing that A24 was in production to create the green knight and again we were already hearing commentary, criticism, complaints about Dev Patel playing a Knight of the Round Table. And I think on every instance, when we started to see the pushback about medievalisms being inclusive, of people of color, of queer relationships, we kept finding those precedents in the Middle Ages. And so even as we structured the book to begin with an Arthurian tale that we felt was so familiar, we wanted to then kind of peel back the layers, acknowledging that of course, there was an element of fantasy in the Middle Ages that we may or may not always acknowledge as art historians or scholars of this period. And then how can we look at the sort of major tropes or themes that we see? So we have a chapter that deals with typical characters that you would encounter, like the knight and the princess. And then we wanted to have an important central chapter about magic. I think that's the one, it's the longest of the chapters. It's the one that we went back and forth so much about. How can we further expand this chapter Um, and then we end with two segments one on staging the middle ages the reenactment culture that Larissa spoke about and then the cinematic fantasy middle ages which is the final chapter that's really looking at all the ways on film that the middle ages come to life and in each instance I think we succeeded Larissa at pushing back on the kind of white straight ableist wealthy male middle ages that is so often presented to share instances and evidence of a broader canon, let's say, of both medieval history and of medievalisms.
1: That's what's so interesting, I think, about medievalism kind of broadly read is that when we started to really dig into the history of it and look back at all of these different tellings of the Arthur story, for example, the idea of medieval medievalism stretches back almost to the middle ages itself and it's always different and it's always changing and always reflects in some way the time in which it's created and the kind of social values, the kind of cultural context uh, of that time and place and we thought oh this is really interesting that 21st century medievalism points toward a more inclusive um, casting a more kind of just a broader representation of the middle ages versus the kind of, even in the nineties, we were thinking about like Sean Connery (laughs) and the the sort of very romantic, very clean middle ages. um, And the kind of ebbs and flows of the aesthetic of the middle ages that really changes over time, really from um, as early as movies exist, there is movie medievalism and it's changed so much over the many decades that we've seen it on film. And We've gotten, we did get a lot of pushback, I think, with some of the, um, we'll say social justice material in the book, but it's really looking at uncovering some of these truths in the Middle Ages um, but then also thinking about the way that scholarship on the Middle Ages is being thought of and written now and how in in an extension the scholarship on medievalism is being written and being told now so um, you know we had some some pushback on our Amazon reviews <laughs> for example where like, this book is too woke and we were like well I guess we've succeeded <laughs> because we've we've done something that doesn't just I think catalog medievalisms over time but really tries to look at the role that medievalism plays in belying sort of a cultural truth I think in whatever time period it it happens to be from and so trying to bring it as up to date as possible and think about things like role-playing games and video games and sort of online forms of medievalism too um just kind of putting it all in a continuum so that we didn't leave out anything because it wasn't sort of traditional art history.
0: Well, and so I know that we're sort of going long on this question, Evan, but I think it's such a good one because it's one that I feel that we continue to go up against even within our field, not up against in an oppositional way, but we continue to face. And your point, Larissa, is a good one because, you know, one out of the six seasons that we ended up recapping for Game of Thrones, for example, one of them. Early on, we did focus on sort of fact-checking the Middle Ages. But that, after a while, felt a little bit too much like the gotcha moments. And it also, to me, I I was then wanting to resist the armor folks, especially. I love the armor folks out there. But I was not going to sit there and watch every episode to try to say, oh, the hilt isn't right, or oh, the scabbard's wrong, or oh, the helmet's off, the mail isn't correct. I was more interested to see when the public resisted seeing any kind of diversity in the Middle Ages. That was the fact-checking I was here for, to say, in fact, there were powerful Black kings and queens in the Middle Ages. This is nothing problematic. This is not a woke culture. This is not fictitious. This is part of the medieval history. It's even a part of the medieval fantasy or imaginary history. So that was the kind of culture that I was more interested in deepening. And I think bringing Larissa onto the project really allowed us to do that because you, I remember from the beginning, Larissa, you had such a better sense of how can we actually get to the heart of what people are bringing to the table rather than... And what did feel like a pull the rug out from under them and say, well, actually, you know, yeah, you're right. That's scabbard.
1: <laughs> I think that's interesting, though, because people I think something that was surprising to me and something that I had not. Thought deeply about when we were doing the Game of Thrones project is how much people know about the Middle Ages and how much they think they know about the Middle Ages based on this super long tradition of medievalism. And so it wasn't really that people had, oh, the wrong idea about the Middle Ages or really needed, you know, their perception of correct armor and. I don't know, castle walls corrected or something like that. But they had been so steeped in the tradition of medievalism, which was really more powerfully tied to the Victorian period and the kind of like regressive sexual mores of that period and the very limited um, kind of thinking about who and what constituted the middle ages and where and when the middle ages was. And people had received that I think so strongly that it, that medievalism itself has actually conditioned the reception of new medieval, um, new medievalism much more than history has. And so thinking about that really long legacy, I think was a really fascinating part of that project. And I think something that made me want to write the book and write the book that we did, which was not fact-checking and it wasn't sort of saying, well, this is fantasy and this is real. It was really about this kind of reflexive view of medievalism and how it still is impacting not just our study of medievalism and the reception of new uh, medieval-inspired media, but it actually really inflects the study of history itself. And it really has um, kind of taken on <laughs> this new um, new life and really does affect that it, the way that people broadly the general public but also scholars i think think about the period itself and the degree to which we can see diversity and inclusivity as part of the period because we're so steeped in that tradition ourselves
3: right right yes i i, I love where this is going uh with you know you touched so much with that one question but uh i i i one thing that i got out of uh, out of reading this book for the first time as well was you know Again, what we think we know and what is what what was actually um the the reality, the truth, I guess, the the historical presence of, of the time and how we imagine that in many ways, you know, in it's 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 hard to 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 me at least to put it out to, to the public in a way that's very well receivable, um, to understand. Because I think it's been um you want to call it the wrong idea, or whatever the medievalism uh, that that you describe uh, has been with us for quite a a long time. And uh, I think at some point in the book, um, you even mentioned that medieval history, not just recently, the 18th century or so, even before then, even in medieval times in many ways, has been reimagined and constructed, and a lot of elements been added to it. So it's not something that is... uh, Um, a product of um, the past few years, right? It's been something that has been continuously cultivated and and expanded uh, from even before I could think that it it would be possible. Like even in the Middle Ages to think that some of the stories that they say is actually fantasy in many ways and maybe they are um, seen as truth down the the line and being adopted as such um, really brings a lot of great questions up um but before i think i want to continue more we bring these words up a lot so and there is a section on your book that you describe them a little bit so the difference and definition between what is medieval medievalism and fantasy um because we do we are we already said medievalism many times um and i want to make sure that everybody understands how this book uses the the concept of medievalism
1: I think we've taken a very broad view of medievalism, um, and it is multimedia and (laughs) sort of stretches in as many different directions as you can imagine. Um, But I think we use the term um, medieval really to mean things that happen in uh, global Middle Ages from about 500 to 1500. That's kind of the typical date range that we use all over the world, not just in Western Europe. I think that's something that was something very interesting to us about medievalism is that it really encompasses only Western Europe in a lot of ways. Um, and so thinking about medievalism in an expanded view, um, I think, opened up a lot of really interesting new directions um anime and manga for example and sort of looking at different global traditions pop culture traditions as well um and so we make a distinction between the historic period of the middle ages uh the global middle ages broadly right and then medievalism being basically everything that comes after (laughs) that refers back to the middle ages and reimagines it in some creative way Um, the difference between, I think, medievalism and fantasy is a really fascinating and very thorny, difficult distinction to draw. Um, And it was something that we talked a lot about when we started writing the book, because we were using these terms kind of interchangeably. And then we sort of realized at some point, wait, not all fantasy is medieval. It's just that the Venn diagram of fantasy and medievalism is very, is almost overlapping in a lot of ways. Um, And we wanted to, I think, Use the word fantasy because not all medievalism is non-fictional, right? And so much of it takes little bits of history, little bits of truth, little bits of reality and combines it with, as Brian said before, the sense of magic and kind of otherworldliness. Um, And so we wanted to have fantasy as as a key word there because it encompassed something else, um, sort of medievalism plus, um, especially in cases where there were kind of unexplained phenomena like magic um, as a part of the world building.
0: And as you said, it is thorny. I mean, anyone that is interested will just have to look at the ATU index, the R Thompson Uther index. It's really remarkable. I mean, it'll take every kind of fantasy story that you can ever imagine and think of and show all the intersections. So if we think the Cinderella story you know, can be traced back to medieval Germany, well, guess what? There are instances in very ancient India where a similar story is being told. So that's where I think your point about it being thorny is a good one, because it got really complicated at a certain point. And then is fantasy different from folklore or folktales? Oh, we sort of hedge on the side of there are elements of folktales in fantasy and when they involve magic, Than it is truly the fantasy genre. I think people have an easier time distinguishing science fiction from fantasy, but I say that having just had a conversation with folks that think that science fiction is itself part of fantasy. So maybe they are all part of fantasy. When you have advanced technology and you're living in outer space, maybe that's now science fiction. Uh, But I can imagine, you know, Star Wars and the Jedi are very much a medievalism, as we say in the book. So that's in outer space, but it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So therefore it's, right? fantasy and medievalism.
1: We also talked about there are sort of elements of fantasy in medievalism, even when the medievalism is not trying to be fantasy. (laughs) So in cases where there's like revival or the idea of excavating a past, but it's very earnest. We called it earnest medievalism. I think when we were talking about it, this like very sincere, and very historically informed effort to rehabilitate a past or to revive a past, whether that was through architecture, through art, through um, arts and crafts, through costume. And though there were very much in those instances, cases of fantasy or having to fill in the gaps with something that was created or imagined or totally made up. And I think there's always an element of fantasy when you're trying to revive something anyway. And I think that came through really strongly with some of the medieval revivals that we were thinking of, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries, we were thinking about people trying to recreate the feeling of the Middle Ages through architecture and through kind of like space creation. And you can't, you can't do that right without involving some suspension of disbelief and some element of fantasy. And so I think we saw, we saw medievalism um, kind of on a continuum, <laughs> kind of on a continuum of less fantasy to more fantasy, more fantasy being, um, you know, worlds and people and places that were totally uh, imagined versus things that were, Based on medieval forms and kind of inspired by medieval culture, um, but you need an element of fantasy to really bring those to life in a true way.
3: Mm-hmm. I like I like the word that you the the you just said feeling for of the Middle Ages or what they might have looked like. Um, I, th- I think I think that that plays a big role in here as well. Um, the need to you know, and I think s- somewhere in the book you said that for some reason this period. Um of the whatever we call the middle ages however we ha, however we define it has been the perfect i guess um uh, i think you say blank canvas or um if i find the 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 exact um the exact word that you use um it's that it's basically has been the perfect i guess breeding ground for all of this to happen and to be carried on like you don't see that a lot with maybe older periods of time, but the medieval period for some reason has has something special um that um forces us and for many generations and uh, m- many years to to recreate it and reuse it and uh make something new out of it but also something that connects back to what we think was um that period of time like it's again i'm getting complex in my own mind just just thinking about it but it, it has all of these multi levels of uh of uh change and um you know how does it feel authentic in many ways um and i think you see though uh, as you mentioned with art and and all of these new things that are coming up in in our own world that that go back to that medievalism as well not sure if i made any sense there
1: (laughs) no you do you do it makes sense um I think this is something that we talked a lot about and like, what is it about the middle ages that actually makes it feel this way or sort of feel like it's a comfortable home for almost any kind of story that people want to tell. And I think there's something about the middle ages being really inextricably bound up with the idea of magic and the idea of um, the idea of like, things that can't be explained. (laughs) And I really think that it has so much to do with um, the advent of children's literature and the kind of setting of these um, really timeless stories and stories that feel Unconnected to any kind of really specific time period, the kind of melding of those stories with the Middle Ages aesthetically. And I think that really happens through children's book illustration, where you have these tales that have come down from a variety of different sources. Some of them actually are medieval, many of them are not. <laughs> Um, But you have them all being set in magical forests with ruined stone buildings and there's a witch and a wizard and there's a prince and a princess and they all are dressed in this sort of like medieval-ish clothing and... So there's a way, I think, that the Middle Ages sort of becomes synonymous with the idea of magic. And because it is a place where anything can happen and all of these magical creatures live, these magical people live, um, that the period itself then becomes sort of flexible and it can stretch out in almost any direction and sort of it becomes at once non-specific in time and like timeless in a way, but then also has these really particular aesthetic boundaries in the same same way, so that we would expect to see something that is fantastical or something that is magical as medieval or as looking medieval, um, even though it's not really connected to any particular time um, or place through um, any really specific detail. It just feels that way. <laughs> and I think there's something kind of interesting about that because it just... It is legible to people, even though they don't really know why, or they can't really identify, well, that's a 13th century dress or a 14th century arch or (laughs) whatever it is, they just understand it to be a particular um, thing. And that thing really broadly speaking is medieval. But what does that really mean? And I think that's what we were really trying to get at with fantasy.
2: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
3: Right. I think you mentioned like the aesthetics of the medieval um, in art, fashion, architecture, whatever that might be. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, at a point it said um, that that aesthetic of the medieval was from 14th and 15th century French and English uh, 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 traditions, literary and artistic traditions. Is that correct? And It's that kind of where we started and that's kind of what we get to know as medieval because of those two centuries of our artistic entanglements, I guess?
0: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, we kept looking at all of the sort of standard major popular medievalizing genres, whether they're in film, theater, or reenactment, and they always had that feel of the 15th century in France and England. We weren't encountering as often a kind of 14th century Central Spanish aesthetic, um, or a 12th-century high medieval German aesthetic, or whatever it is. I mean, we're not encountering, and that wouldn't have been even accurate what I just said. But uh, you know, like finding these kinds of aesthetics, it, it seemed to be the visuals, whether it's the, the the sleeves, the swooping sleeves that I think Larissa, you've continued to do research on, um, the pointed hats, the hennins. I mean, it's all the standard kinds of costuming that you expect. And so there's that point that it becomes a conversation about authenticity or accuracy, and what are they striving towards. Um, Some things that might feel authentic are not accurate to the period that they're trying to depict. I think when we watched Netflix Cursed, I was completely confused because they were mentioning Vikings and Charlemagne and Crusades um, and Paladins and all sorts in Inquisition, all in a matter of one episode. I think when in history are we actually? But of course, that didn't matter. It was all the right words that would tell us we're sometime in this past. I think another analogy is when I went to prom for high school, I could dress as an elf from Lothlorien and then go to the Episcopal Church around the corner to take photos because it looked gothicizing, so it had the big stonework that I would expect to find in England, and then go to the Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA that was built in 1923 and see Art Nouveau arches all around me, and it somehow felt like I had just walked into Tolkien's Middle-earth. So that, from a, a, a California or a United States perspective, that's where I see those entanglements becoming even more interesting. To Larissa's point about the medievalisms conditioning the way in which people see the Middle Ages, Hollywood and video games and reenactment and Comic-Con cultures um, certainly have a major role to play in that. And so that's where I think people bring that memory of seeing a children's book illustrated with a castle and a princess and a dragon, and then they encounter the Middle Ages again in in junior high and now they still have those images of knights, and they watch some movies and play some games along the way and by the time they're adults, medievalists like ourselves, I still go to Italy and find myself falling after reenactment cultures when I'm studying choir books of the 14th century. I go to the lo- local choirs to hear them sing the volumes. That's a form of medievalism, right? so our whole field of study is wrapped up in that, I think.
3: And I think that's what makes it very, very interesting, because uh, it's such. Um, even if you know the me- the medievalism, I guess, feel to- topic um, can really, even as medievalism itself can really tell us, as you as you mentioned in the book, more about ourselves than the past. Um, and I found uh, I-, I found uh, enlightening uh, to think in that way when when you see these things and what you just mentioned, Brian. You really see our tendencies um why do we like this why is something that we get drawn on um um, yeah so it's again it's something that i keep thinking about um as as i go about life now every day because you know you you never know what my lark in the corner that might remind me of medievalism or medieval times or um and it's there there are there are everywhere even in america as yeah you mentioned you mentioned churches and Artistic representations and statues and whatever that might be. Um, This is
1: something we talked a lot about too, which was like, what is American medievalism specifically? And how does it actually differ from European medievalism or medievalism from any other place? And I don't know that we really settled on a single answer. I think that it is really fascinating because it's not our history in a way, um, as Americans. Um, and we're not as close to the fabric of that history, I think, as, um, as Europeans are, or as people from, um, other kind of like, chronologically bound places. <laughs> and, um, there's a freedom in that. I think there, there were so many examples of American architecture that were freely medievalizing, but were not, Connected to any particular past. It was really borrowing from here, taking from there, making some weird stained glass, you know, but it's this very kind of fantastical reimagining of what a medieval past could look like. um, But having it sort of unconnected to anything um, actually. In the place. And this is something we talked a lot about with um, California, especially in thinking about um, indigenous presence and medieval what does medieval America actually look like? And it's really not what people think. Um, But of course, there was a medieval past here in America. It just doesn't look like the same kind of gothicizing architecture that we think of from the 14th and 15th centuries in Northern Europe. And so we started to think, well, what does the Middle Ages actually look like in other places? And how do we revive and reenact it when it doesn't always look the same as we think it's going to, based on these um, really long histories of European medievalism or your sort of European-inspired medievalism. Um, and I think when we started to consider those global traditions, um, they became really, really fascinating. Um, and the Middle Ages looks really different from the point of view of of these other locations. And even though we have a very kind of narrow view of what the Middle Ages looks like or what feels authentic to us when we look at 21st century media, Um, I think that expanded view of medievalism is really fascinating, too. Something we didn't get to explore a ton in the book, but I think which would be much much interesting, would be very interesting for future projects, for sure. I think we laid some groundwork, right?
0: Because we're not Islamicists, and yet in our work as medievalists, we certainly work on uh, various Muslim cultures, whether it's Muslim Spain or Muslim Italy or elsewhere. And I think if we took the example of the Shahnatmeh, for example, you have a chronicle, a book of kings, that is an incredibly popular text in Persian. And it can contains lots of stories that might be considered fantastical with fantastic creatures, fantastic deeds, outings into new um, regions and lands, stories that read very similarly or map nicely onto the genre of Marco Polo or other traveler tales or other chronicles. And yet we're not seeing the Shahnameh, for example, made into epic cinematic streaming series, which I think would be excellent. It would be an incredible series. Um, but that's to your point, Larissa, about the global medieval and whatever we call medieval, even if a different word is used to describe that past. There is still a long history, even in the case of the Shahnameh, of recreations and reinterpretations. Um, the L.A. County Museum of Art in our backyard has a great collection of contemporary art inspired by the Shah Nahme. So we're seeing that visual references. And even, I think we touched a little on manga and anime. There are a lot of great anime today that reference samurai culture from the historic European Middle Ages, um, and seeing those references of black knights that are historically accurate to the history of Japan is also really exciting, that there is this constant return to that moment of 500 to 1500, whatever it is.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, I think I found uh, that, that quote from the book, if I can quote it, um, that you talk about medievalism, um as a parchment or other surface that has been scrapped to be reused but maintains a trace of the original writing. Um so you kinda as you just said, uh Brian, it's 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 a new thing. Um so medievalism scared the memory of the past and are relevant in in new ways in the present. Um and I think so. I guess the question that arises in, in my mind is it i guess from 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 your experience what has been the how has it been received from the public um the 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 undertaking of really looking at okay you see these two images this is medieval this is medievalism what is the what is the i guess the primary um goal purpose um thing that will come out of uh, really instilling into the public this is, you know, the historical truth is not what you see as medievalism or that kind of um, debate or, or or explanation, further explanation of, of this topic.
1: I think this was a really interesting thing for me when I was doing public tours of the exhibition and kind of talking to people about the objects in the show um, and which are in the book as well. Um, mm-hmm. The reaction was sort of whoa, I didn't know there was all of this. (laughs) And it was really putting, I think, pop culture and things that people were so familiar with and so invested in, things like Harry Potter, things like Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, um, Disney, which people have a really strong emotional connection to, um, but which have never been analyzed in any really critical way. And putting that stuff in conversation with and in a continuum with not just medieval objects, but everything in between. So looking at something from the 19th century and, you know, fairy paintings from the 19th century, and then children's book illustration from the early 20th century, and kind of seeing that, like, lineage, laying that lineage out, um, put things in a different kind of context for people that I think was somewhat surprising. And I think there was also this element of people not being used to seeing that stuff in a museum context or seeing that, that kind of um, object kind of put in conversation with these historic objects. Um, But seeing that like medievalism is currently under construction, that this is ongoing, our vision of this past. I think that was, That was surprising, I think, for some people. And it was really satisfying to see. because It was like, yes, all of this stuff exists. And it's not just like Lord of the Rings didn't come from nothing, right? Tolkien himself was a medievalist. Like, he was very knowledgeable about this past and very exacting about that, researching that past. At the same time, he was creating these kind of fictional worlds. And So I think it wasn't just a a matter of putting something modern in conversation with something medieval, but really connecting the dots through history. And I think the the reaction to the exhibition and to the book has been, oh, wow, I didn't know all of this stuff existed. And I think it really has prompted a reevaluation of what people consider the Middle Ages and how they think about the Middle Ages, especially as it's being presented to them in modern pop culture.
0: I think the only thing to add is that great example that I loved hearing accompanying you in the galleries, Larissa, for the exhibition was just hearing visitors so surprised that the gargoyles of Notre Dame in Paris are not the medievalizing fabric that we associate with. You know, we think of Viollet-le-Duc's renovations in the 19th century. I mean, that, if nothing else, is the eye-opening Uh, moment for many people, and then realizing that, yes, of course, there were dragons in the Middle Ages. People believed there were dragons, there were lands of dragons, they were on maps, and so therefore, yes, there were dragons. So I think I felt, too, that the book and the show really empower uh, visitors and readers to embrace that medievalism and embrace, Evan, as you were saying earlier, to find in the nooks and crannies of our lives those references to the Middle Ages. And what is it about a crenellation or a turret or a pointy hat or a long pointy shoe that draws us to the Middle Ages. There is some element of truth, but it's more about how it's being imagined, reimagined, used today.
3: Right. And I think you mentioned, um, again, as you say, yeah, you look at that and then your mind goes to medieval. And I think, you know, Disney and how we grew up uh, from day one, you know, this is distinct the things that you are... Um, I think you mentioned here one of the very famous... Um, I'm blinking on the name, but one of the very famous Disney... Um, Movies with Excalibur um, and and the Wizard. Yes, yes. So I, I I saw the image on your book, and then immediately I went back to rewatch it, uh, and it reminded me of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, there's all of these themes that uh, you look at them, and your mind goes to me to medieval history, um, and sometimes. Um, you confuse, uh, and, and I think that's where a lot of the problem in the past happened. You confuse the medievalistic aspect and you confuse it as real history. And, that's, and that gets more complicated. Um, but a question uh, for you, as, as you kind of describe this process of really dissecting um, these things that we see as medieval, how hard is it? I think in your book, you mentioned that these things have been piled on top of each other for so many years. How hard is it to look at something like a pointy hat, a depiction of a pointing hat, and try to find its origin source um, to really say that, okay, this was created by this artist, by this person at this time. As I can assume, it's really hard.
1: (laughs) I mean, in some cases, I would say it's almost impossible. And I think this was part of the realization we had around fact-checking, which was like, is it actually important? (laughs) to find the source? Um, And, or is it more interesting to think about, well, why does that pointy hat mean medieval to so many people? Um, And I think there are very few things for which we could find the original source. And then then a lot of things which we assumed were medieval and which were not at all. (laughs) So we were able to find, you know, little, the kernels of um, some of the fairy tales and kind of folk tales that we were thinking about in medieval literature, but then many that had that we couldn't at all. And, but which feel very medieval to people and which I think people were surprised to find were not medieval at all, things like, things like fairies, and like the visualization of these kinds of creatures, which is very much part of the 19th century, but which has been read back into the period, and feels authentic, even though a medieval person would never have recognized it. Um, And I think that kind of tension or that dialogue between past and present was the more interesting thing. And very few Um, very few kind of individual aspects of uh, medievalism were we able to really trace back. Um, Although we do in the book um, talk a lot about the kind of nature of medieval storytelling and the kind of elements of fantasy that are present in manuscript culture um, of the Middle Ages. And so we are sort of looking for... Like the medieval spirit of things, I think, in, in the source material. And we're really thinking about well, what is it about like medieval fantasy culture that gives rise to these kinds of things or that makes the period feel like it is a comfortable home for these things? Um, And so we were thinking a lot about manuscript images of Alexander the Great and these sort of like adventure fantasy tales, which would make such great movies or limited series. (laughs) um, But which even in the Middle Ages, even in the illumination culture of the Middle Ages, um, you know, manuscript images are not documentary. And so they have so many of these same elements of adventure and fantasy and magic that we see in later medievalism. And so I think uncovering that part of the source material was actually the more important thing, that kind of like spirit of storytelling more than it was kind of finding the individual source material for any particular character or aspect of um, medieval worlds.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now that you mentioned Alexander the Great, you, you guys do, do have in the book this incredible, I haven't seen it before, um, Alexander the Great reimagined in this very, very medieval, um, probably English or French, again, going, going back to that point, um, setting and, and everything, and it reminded me of, uh, the many depictions of, of Aristotle as well, um, that he's shown as this, uh, Pope-like figure in many ways, and, um, uh, Again, quite interesting to go back to the point that we see the past in our own eyes through that medievalism perspective. Um, I guess a fun question, what's your favorite medievalism or or an aspect? Like what do you enjoy uh, digging into?
0: (laughs) For me, it's Tolkien all the way. I will never tire of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Everything that he created, everything that has come after Tolkien continues to fascinate me.
1: I think I have to say, I have been saying reenactment generally, but Brian and I to fin- to sort of celebrate the end of fantasy took a group of medieval scholars to medieval times here in California to the Buena Park location. And the idea of reenacting medieval jousting and sort of medieval combat and having this audience that is like, emotionally invested in it. And it's not just like it's dinner theater, but it's something else. And like something else is happening there. (laughs) Um, And I think the idea of um, medieval reenactment is so fascinating to me because it is so popular still. I mean, there are like several medieval times locations across North America that do several shows a week to adoring crowds. And there's something about the Middle Ages, I think that makes it reenactable. Um, and I think it's so fun. And it's so fun to be immersed in that kind of world. As I was doing some um, of the tours for the show, I was saying to people, there isn't like Victorian land or ancient Greek world. And like, I would love to that to be the case like I would definitely go to those places but there's something about the middle ages that makes people want to experience it and I find that really fascinating and I think um sort of an ongoing um, source of interest for me is just the what draws people to these places and what makes them want to keep coming back even if they have no connection to the middle ages at all um, in other parts of their lives
3: yeah yeah and I personally see them um new ones keep popping up even in, in new england as well um so there is definitely a market out there for this and you know um i personally knowing that this these things that i enjoy as medieval are medievalisms i still enjoy and i like imagining myself in these things listening to the flute music and w- whatever is accompanied as as medieval as well like i know that it's a medievalism but i still enjoy being Part of it, and and imagining myself in those um, situations as well, and 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 I think a lot of the people that are into this um, um, culture, I guess, uh, I I want to imagine that they feel the same way. There 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 is something more there than an a reenactment or just enjoying it. I think uh, something deep inside us, I guess, uh, which might be a source for a different book.
1: <laughs> there's well, we have been talking about this too. There's there's a real kind of I think there's a tendency among academics to kind of separate their academic interests from their personal interests. And sometimes these kinds of things medievalisms are talked about as like a guilty pleasure or something that like you shouldn't indulge in as a serious academic. And I just think there's there's no way to separate your experience of the world and kind of pop culture from your scholarship and to ignore these things, I think is to ignore a big part of what makes us medievalists and um, to not just to contend with that in modern life, but to really embrace it and kind of see that as a a real advantage that we have as medievalists, because people are interested; they want to know things. Um, and so, I think working with medievalism instead of against it is is really part of our practice. And I think writing this book, I think, has opened up a whole different kind of set of avenues for not just connecting with the general public, but really making scholarship relevant in a new way, and really thinking about the role that these kinds of things have in everyday life—not just for the general public, but for us as as scholars and to really reflect on that I think is such an important part of this work. Well, and exactly to Larissa's
0: point, I mean, I was just at the major Medieval Academy of America convening and the number of medievalism sessions that were there were double or triple what I remember from previous years. And a number of individuals, this is not just a pat on the back, but I'll take it, said, you know, it was really thanks to the work that you and Larissa have done that have made it feel okay to do this work. Exactly as you say, I mean, there are people that are now finding the medieval all around them. The fact that there are medieval California projects, medieval Baltimore, medieval New Jersey, medieval New York, medieval Washington, DC. I think that speaks to the promise of doing this work in our own backyard and acknowledging that our students are surrounded by it wherever they go. And that the Middle Ages, they encounter in the museums, the galleries, the churches, the streets here in the US might look very different from the Middle Ages they encounter in Europe. And what does that mean? And then also, yes, I am all here for leaning into every guilty pleasure that we have of medievalism because I will watch every trashy animated or live action medievalizing thing on any streaming platform and then quickly text Larissa and say, well, that was garbage but at least I enjoyed it for the last hour or whatever. So I mean, we do that they're frequently, to right? They're, they're,
1: they are. they're fun though. That's the thing. I mean, I think the the re- what's at the heart of this is fun and enjoyment. And so thinking about not just analyzing it, critiquing it, which we can definitely do, but like let's also enjoy it. Um, and I I suspend my disbelief, I think, when I watch these things, because it's not fun to fact check as you watch, right? (laughs) Um, You want to have that conversation later on after you've digested it. But I think there's a real um, there's a real sense of fun and pleasure with these things. And uh, I think making that a part of our study and the way that we approach the material um, hopefully makes it appealing to a more general public.
3: (laughs) Yes, I don't think there's anything worse than people fact checking things as you watch them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: Unless it's to say, oh, that's another instance of the unicorn tapestries appearing in an unexpected place. That's okay. We'll do that frequently. But yes, the armor, <laughs> no.
3: <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you. That 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 was a, a, a very fun um, answer to the question. Um, we're, we're coming up to time. Um, I have a question that I really think will, will benefit, and it really ties back to what you just said uh, a few minutes ago, Brian. At the end of the book, you mentioned that, and I'm going to quote here, the future of medieval studies, of museum presentations of the Middle Ages and of medievalism itself must be audience-driven. Be in dialogue with an expanded global public, seek to break down disciplinary and departmental divisions, and be mobilized to dismantle harmful stereotypes about the many parts disguised as medieval. Um, so, what do you mean by audience-driven, and what are some suggestions that you might offer under this proposed framework for the stu- for the future study of this?
1: I mean. In my mind, audience-driven means inclusive. Um, And so medieval studies is not just for medievalists, and it's not medievalist writing for other medievalists. I really think that when we're thinking about not just scholarship, but public scholarship, museum presentation, really cannot be in a vacuum. We cannot just be talking to ourselves, making an exhibition, and then never talking to our audience. I think something that was so transformational... Something that was so transformational about um, the Game of Thrones project was really hearing what people had to say about the Middle Ages and using that as inspiration for what we did um, in our scholarship and in the galleries. And I think that dialogue has really changed the way that I think about presenting medieval art uh, to an expanded global audience and not just to people who are thinking about the Middle Ages all the time like I
0: am. Yeah, I agree. I think even as a curator, what, what I kept thinking is that if we already know that we receive like 2 million visitors to the Getty Museum and less than 1% are scholars, but upwards of 15 to 28% are school-age children in a state that has something like um, you know 5.5 million children, all of whom will go through a fourth grade curriculum that introduces the Middle Ages, some of whom will continue on to a junior high and high school curriculum that encounters the Middle Ages, and all of whom will likely have encountered the Middle Ages at some point before the age 10, based on a study that was done by the Medieval Academy in like the 80s. So if we already know that, I just kept thinking, why do we often present our exhibition proposals and book ideas geared towards that less than 1% scholarly audience? Of course, it's an important audience, and I think we come to curation as scholars. I didn't Go to school to be a curator, for example. I knew I wanted to study what I wanted to study. But if we already know that those audiences that come to the Middle Ages through popular culture or through their educational curriculum far outnumber, then I think we have to be listening. And that's where social media truly became the most important place, where we were receiving hundreds of questions, just a deluge of questions that were so smart. We, you know, we did get this sort of what we might call silly questions, but even the silly questions, I think, came from a place of real earnest desire to know. You know, did they wear underwear in the Middle Ages? You know, it sounds silly, but of course it allows us to dig, well, how often would they have worn underwear? Did they wash the underwear? Was it one pair of underwear? You know, there was so much. Wealth of information there that I think we can learn from and so that's where I think to the point of let's not hide behind like being embarrassed by our guilty pleasures, but realizing that this is part of a huge global community uh, that is invested something in this field for, uh, you know, a, a good reason and we should want to know why.
3: Perfect. Thank you both so much. I have so many more questions that came up from this from from reading this book, but I think we're out of time. <laughs> um, I thank you again. Um, I would like to ask the last question before you go. Um, and that is what are you up to nowadays? Do you have any other fun projects that you're working on?
1: Well, we're always up to something. Um, So I'm working on a couple of upcoming exhibitions at the Getty Center. Um, The next one, which opens at the end of August, is called Graphic Design in the Middle Ages, which is about um, page layout, information visualization, um, all the kind of creative approaches that medieval scribes and artists take to designing books. Um, And then the show that I'm really excited about after that for February of 2024, which seems like a long time from now, but it's really not in museum time. um, is a show called Blood, uh, which will be about the many iterations of medieval blood and devotion, medicine, um, speaking genealogically, uh, all about political violence, things like that. Um, But the show is is going to be, I think, really um, cool because it puts medieval objects in dialogue with some contemporary photography, uh, objects of contemporary art. um, And I think hopefully in dialogue with the with the audience and with our visitors, um, I think it will uncover some really interesting connections across time.
0: And I'm very excited for Larissa's blood project because I think it will be very important for the field, but also get people thinking about blood in new ways. I'm sort of finishing a project on uh, choir books in the Middle Ages that came out of my dissertation. So I'll be back in Italy very soon in residency. And that will be great to return to as one of my former colleagues said, the serious work of our scholarship as medievalists, of which I think all of the work we do is serious, whether it's medievalism or choir books. Um, but then also working on a few projects related to gender and sexuality in the Middle Ages for handbooks on gender and sexuality, and then an exhibition project that's still fomenting about contemporary artists who have thought about the Middle Ages in creative ways to say something about gender and sexuality.
3: Those those are both very interesting and I'll definitely have to visit the Getty Museum next time I'm in California as well. Um, Best of luck to both of you for those projects. And I thank you again very much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Um, Take care. Thank 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 you. you
1: so much.